So we'll be in Mark chapter 5, and uh, I want to read verse 1 right off the bat because it kind of introduces what's going on. And so it says in Mark 5, 1, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes, or the Gadarenes. There's a few different pronunciations. So the they here, of course, is Jesus and his disciples. If you remember, uh, they left Capernaum in the last lesson, and they headed out across the sea. It was evening when they did that. And we looked at a miracle. We, we saw a miracle unfold. Uh, as we read last week, and what miracle is that? The stilling of the what? The storm, right. So they go across the sea, and of course Jesus being asleep in the boat, and uh, they wake him in, in unbelief. They, they wake him with, without faith. That's what Jesus reprimands them for. Um, even in, in the gracious way that he did it, it was still a, a bit of a rebuke to them to, uh, that they should have been more trusting in him and of course, he speaks and the storm calms. It goes from violent, stormy, 10-foot waves possibly to just smooth as glass. And then the, the real fear kicks in at the end, if you'll remember that, that then they really feared and they said, what manner of man is this? What kind of a man is this that can speak and the storm is still? They had seen healings, they had seen exorcisms, but they had never seen a storm and that way. And so now they come to the other side of the sea and we're going to watch another miracle unfold. And what's really interesting about this miracle is that it has so many parallels with the calming of the storm. It really is another calming of a storm, just of a different sort. So Gadarenes was an area or Gadarenes that was part, it was on the eastern shore of Galilee. And it was part of a region, a group of cities called the Decapolis. Uh, the region of Decapolis, it corresponds roughly with the Old Testament region of Gilead. Today, this would have been, this would be northwest Jordan and southern Syria is the, is the region. Now, the term Decapolis, does anyone know what that term is, means literally? Ten cities, right. That's the literal interpretation um, however, uh, as the historical records are read, it seems to be um, there's some fluctuation in that number. So there was around 10 cities, maybe not always exactly that. Um, but in any case, the cities were really not a unified confederation. And I'm just giving you some background so you, you kind of understand what they're walking into as they get to the other side of the sea. Um, but they did share, of course, the close geographical ties. They were all in one large region. Uh, they were also, they shared uh, cultural ties. They, this was a very Greek-centered area. They had a Greek culture that was there. And so that affected um, probably their, well, it definitely affected their religion. It affected, I'm sure, the way they dressed, the way that the architecture was, um, the, the economy, the trade interests. Um, this area had a certain level of uh, independence, if you will, from the Roman government, from, from Rome. They were certainly under Rome, yet they, they seemed to enjoy a certain level of uh, independence. In fact, um, it's been found that they were in that region minting their own coins, which tells us that they had some sort of um, local government 
established that was able to do that and were not under the maybe direct control of uh, the, the empire. Um, during the time of Christ, this region was under the jurisdiction of Herod. And so that kind of gives you a little bit of background on this area. You remember when Jesus left after he got done teaching from the boat in Capernaum, he said, let's go to the other side. Let us go. So this was all part of Jesus' plan. He had to get to this side of the, of the sea to continue to live in obedience to the Father and to fulfill his missions. So what have we just seen? We mentioned it already. Jesus calming a storm with his voice. He simply spoke and it was calm. This was his authority on full display. Remember, the authority of Jesus is one of Mark's biggest themes. It's one of the main things that Mark is focusing on. Now, we have that word immediately, and we will see that in this passage, but we also have the concept of the identity of Christ, and along with that, his authority. And we see that issue of Christ's authority repeated over and over. We've already seen it several times. And of course, that's where the disciples stand in awe. That's really what they're standing in awe of as the storm is stilled and they say, what kind of man is this? What manner of man? They're, they're in awe of his authority. And that's what Mark is gonna continue to build out as we move into chapter five. So we've already seen Jesus' authority over demons in Mark and this passage now is going to take that um, authority over demons to kind of another level. We're going to see more interaction with these demons and how they have no choice but to obey uh, the Son of God. So we've broken it down into these different sections. First of all, verses 1 through 5, we have this demoniac who we're going to meet. As soon as they step out of the boat, this is the first person that they meet. We're going to see the demoniac's condition. We've already read verse 1. So let's go to verse 2. When he, that is Jesus, had come out of the boat, here's our word, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So we have Jesus coming out of the boat and we have this man coming out of the tombs and it's immediately. I'm gonna read and you can follow along. I don't have these verses on the screen, but I'm gonna read verses three through five, and then we'll, we'll go in and, and study it out. Verse three, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. So Mark is painting for us quite a picture here. If you can picture this in your mind, this is a remarkable scene. It's very heartbreaking and sad, but it is also very shocking as they step out of the boat and this is what they see and hear. And I want to go through all of the things, or at least the highlight, the main issues that this man had, okay? First of all, it says that he had an unclean spirit. 
an unclean spirit. This was a synonym for a demon. Um, These demons, of course, are the satanic force in the world. They are under Satan's leadership. They do his bidding. And they are also uh, connected to the strong man, which is also Satan, that Jesus referred to back in Mark 3.27 when he told the Pharisees that if, we're going, if I'm going to come in and plunder the house and the goods of the strong man, I must first bind him. If you remember that when we studied Mark 3, uh, of course, that is Satan. And so as we're watching Jesus cast these demons out, that's exactly what he's doing. He's binding Satan's power because he is Satan's authority and casting these demons out. We're actually going to discover later that this was not just one unclean spirit in this man, but many, many spirits living in his man, in in his body. Uh, The second thing we see was that he was among the tombs. He was among the tombs. Now, these were not cemeteries like we picture today. Um, here in America, where there's um, a flat ground with, with markers and tombstones and, and different things that, uh, that memorialize those that have passed away. It wouldn't have looked like that. These tombs were actually above the ground. They were cave-like rooms that were carved out of the rocks in the hills, and what would happen would be if someone passed away, their body would be placed into this cave. A stone would be placed in front of it, and the body would decompose. When it had finished decomposing, the bones were removed. They were placed in usually a box, an ossuary, and placed in another um, area. And then the tomb could be reused for the next uh, person that passed away that owned that tomb. Um, we have seen this, we see this already in scripture. We saw it with Lazarus. If you remember, Lazarus was placed in the tomb and Jesus comes, he tells them to do what? Roll the stone away. And Lazarus comes out. That wasn't coming up out of the ground like what we'd have today. It was just walking out of a cave, for lack of a better word. Of course, we saw that, we're gonna see that with Jesus as well, right? His body was buried into this cave-like sepulcher and then, of course, he walked out not by someone else's power, but by his own at his resurrection. Um, these tombs would, would be considered unclean um, by Jewish standards. And even walking across one made you ceremonially unclean. And so that's where this man is living, in a place where dead bodies are decomposing. And I'm sure he was going into those that weren't being used at, at the time. In other words, those that had the stone out of the way and that were empty, and he was dwelling in there. He would go in there when it would rain, perhaps, or go in there at night um, and, and living, using those empty tombs, those empty caves as a dwelling. We also see that he was shackled and chained. Remember that he has, and we're gonna, have, we're gonna see multiple demons living inside of him. Um, why did Satan come? Why did the thief come? To do what? There's three things. Steal, kill, and destroy. And so anyone possessed by one of these demons would be erratic, violent, 
destructive. Steal, kill, destroy. That was the mission. And so when the demons came into this man's body, and we're not told anything about how that happened or how long he had been um, demon-possessed, but at some point in the past, they had come into his body, and his whole behavior had changed, presumably, that he had lived for a while, and then it happened. Uh, He went from normal life to being violent, to being dangerous, to being erratic. And so uh, people, the residents, had attempted to bind him, to incarcerate him, to chain him up so he could no longer be a threat to society, which is pretty uh, normal. I think normal human behavior would be like, this guy is a danger to us. He's a danger to our children. He's a danger to our property. So we're going to bind him. We're going to chain him up so he can't harm others. He can't harm himself. And the fact that he could break these chains and these shackles are like a large uh, handcuff-shaped device, if you will, that was for restraining. He was able to just break these made of metal, made of iron. It shows uh, the evidence of the supernatural strength of, of the demons. And not only was this man a ward for demons, imprisoning him in a life of horror, it was like a nightmare that you could never wake up from. If you just think about it through his eyes, what he was seeing, what he was experiencing. So he's bound by these chains, and and I can just picture them just dangling after he had broken them. He's dragging these chains around um, from his uh, hands and from his feet. Um, when, as he walked, and you think of what, what metal does when it rubs on our skin, it chafes the skin. So he was blistering, he was, he was uh, chafed and, and, and raw and bleeding. You just think about the total misery of a man possessed by these demons. Well, not only those things, but he was also crying out and cutting. So we get this more gruesomeness of this man's state screaming and self-harm. And if you can just imagine in your mind this eerie screaming that's echoing through the mountains and the tombs, the, the fear and the terror and the total despair that rose up every time he wailed out this scream, these, these horrible uh, yells that he would project We also see that he was cutting himself with sharp stones, cutting his body. You can picture the bloodiness of that. You can picture uh, the the sharp rock held in his grasp in in this fit of rage and self-destructive anger and the cuts, the lacerations all over his body, some of them still bleeding, some maybe healing, but many probably infected. Think of there was no one to to clean out the wounds like the the good Samaritan did when he found the man. Remember, he uses oil and wine and he cleans the wounds. There was no one to do that for this man. So no doubt there was infection and, and uh, you know, and I don't mean to be gross, but but pus and and oozingness of of his body. And you say, well, why would he terrorize himself? Why would he cut himself? Well, there was no one else to terrorize. He had been shunned from society And you think, steal, kill, destroy. Well, the demon, no doubt, demons, 
wanted him to use those stones on other people. Well, there was no one else to use them on, so they were turned on himself, on his host. The demon turned those, those weapons, if you will, attacking their host. Notice also that it was happening, and I should have put this as a point, but verse 5, if you look at that, how often was this happening? What's, there's two descriptions, night and day, and what's the other one before that? Always. Always, night and day and day and night, every hour, every day, all the time. Always, he was screaming and cutting himself. Constantly. There was no break. It was a gruesome scene, and this man had no hope. He had no hope. Uh, We can look at some of the parallel passages in the other synoptic gospels, which are Uh, would be along with Mark, Matthew, and Luke. We know from Luke's account that he was not clothed. He was naked. So just the horror and devastation of that. And then Matthew tells us that it wasn't just one man. There were actually two men living among the tombs, screaming out. Now you just take everything we just described and you double it. That's actually what's happening here. Now, some have used this as a way to attack the Bible's veracity, its trustworthiness, to say, well, see, there's a contradiction here because Matthew says there were two and Mark says um, that there were one. It's really not a contradiction. It's just a different viewpoint, just like all, all the supposed contradictions in the Gospels are just simply different points of view from a different angle. So you've got Jesus in the center and you've got these four men and I always picture them as artists and they're painting a portrait. We know Mark's portrait is the suffering servant and he's seeing Jesus only from one perspective. He's not seeing Jesus from John's perspective or Matthew's or Luke's. And so he's only giving us from his perspective. Besides that, if there were two men, weren't there also just one man? Or I should say, one, not just one. If there were two, there were one. An omission of part of the account does not make it a false account. It's just a different focus. And so that's what we see here. So this man with no hope. Mark tells us that others had tried to help. In verse four, if you look, it says, neither could anyone what? Tame him. Neither could anyone tame him. That tells us that some had tried. Perhaps a group had gotten together or just an individual and said, I'm going to help this man. I'm going to do something out of compassion or self-preservation or for the greater good of the community. They had tried to reform him, to restrain him, but nothing would work. There was no avail. There was no help. He was beyond all human strength. And what a picture that is of us in our sin. There's nothing we can do outside of putting our faith in Christ that alleviates our sin problem. And our sin problem to God is just as ugly, if not more ugly, than what I have just described this man. So we can kind of take that with us as we go through here. 
So we have the, secondly, the demoniac's cry. We see that in verses, let's start with six through eight. When he, the demoniac, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he, Jesus, said to him, the demoniac, actually to the spirit, come out of the man, unclean spirit. So, you're one of the disciples. Put yourself there. The boat gets pulled up on shore. You can hear the bow kind of going through the gravelly, sandy shoreline. And men, are you're beginning to get out and your ankle, you're ankle deep in the water and you splash up onto the shoreline. And the first thing you hear is this horrifying scream. And you look in the direction and here comes this wild, unclothed, chains dragging behind, hair wild, filthy, lacerated person running at you at full speed, screaming. I would have got back in the boat and said, I'm going back across. But Jesus, and I love this portrait along with the suffering servant is uh, Jesus' authority. He just stands there because he is the son of the most high God. He has no, it doesn't even flinch. And he stands there and says, come out of him unclean spirit. What authority. He's just standing there. Just picture Jesus grounded, in control, steadfast, unflinching in the face of a maniac. Now Mark kind of tells us things a little bit out of order. So it would have been that the demoniac sees Jesus and screams. The first thing that happens is Jesus' command to leave. And so we, we see that in verse 8. Mark adds that. This is why uh, he had made these comments, what do I have to do with you? And we saw that same statement, question, if you will, made by a previous demon that Jesus was casting out. What do we have in common, in other words? And, and he was actually speaking truth. The demon was speaking truth. There's nothing in common with, with, between Jesus and Satan, Jesus and his demons. So the man falls on his knees. He's bowing before Jesus and addresses him by his deific identity. Jesus, son of the most high God. The demons understand who Jesus is. We saw that verse out of James this morning. The, the demons believe in what? Tremble. And that's what we're seeing here. Um, the evidence of that. And so Jesus has commanded him to come out. Let's take a little bit closer look because it says that he worshiped him. He worshiped him. What does that mean? Does that mean this demon understood that he was God and that he needed to be saved somehow and so he's worshiping Jesus? Well, the word actually means to reverence or to pay homage by prostration. It was, it, this, this type of word was like um, when, when you've seen like a medieval scene with a king and he has a big ring and the person comes up and kneels before the king and kisses the ring, or like a knight that kneels down before the king as he is knighted. It's, it's that kind of honoring. It's not the kind of worship we did this morning. 
as we lifted our voices and sang um, to the greatness of God and we um, were thinking of how wonderful our Lord is and celebrating our salvation. That's not what this is talking about. Okay, this is more perfunctory. It was an act of reverence based on the superior power in the room. So he wasn't worshiping God over in the tombs and then he saw Jesus and decided to worship him in person. He's simply acknowledging Jesus' authority. Again, Mark's highlighting that for us. He calls him Jesus, son of the most high. And this is out of Bible Knowledge Commentary. Uh, so this is a quote from there. But it says, the words most high God were used in the Old Testament often by Gentiles, which is interesting because Jesus is in a Gentile region right now, to refer to the superiority of the true God of Israel over all the man-made gods. And this demon is giving credence to that. He's saying, you are the son of the most high God. Yes, there's these other small g gods, but you are the son of the most high God. There's no one higher. They recognized that Jesus had superior power. So many people saw Jesus do miracles, casting out demons, healing. But remember what did the Pharisees accuse him of? Doing it under whose power? Under Satan's power, which is a self-refuting argument. Well, you guys are saying then that Satan is destroying his own kingdom. And that's where he makes the statement about binding the strong man. So the Pharisees, steeped in religion, steeped in the Old Testament, and the law and the prophets, could not see it, but the demons can. He wasn't just any God. He was the son of God. The son is the exact representation of. You are equal to. That's what he's saying here. You are equal to the most high God, the true and living God of the universe and beyond. In Mark 1.24, uh, a similar title. Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And notice his request that he has, this request of the demons, plural. I implore you by God that you do not torment me. So once again, he's of course acknowledging Jesus' authority over him. And he also is acknowledging that the demons and Satan also knows that their days are numbered. They know that time will run out for them. Um, The parallel passage in Matthew 8 sheds more light. They say, and suddenly they, the demons, cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us when? Before the time. They understood that eventually Jesus' power would stop their ministry, not their ministry, their, um, their attack, if you will, on mankind dead in its tracks and they would no longer be able to oppress. They would no longer be able to steal, kill, and destroy. Second uh, Peter 2.4 talks about this as well. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be what? Reserved for judgment reserved, held until the right time for judgment. They understand that this is happening. They know there's 
coming in the future of final judgment of demons and of Satan. And they're frantic right now and were then and still are today to cause as much havoc and destruction until that day. So he's saying, are you going to torment us before the time? Are you going to um, judge us before it's time to judge us? That's what he's asking. Well, let's go back to our text here in verse number nine. Then notice Jesus has commanded him to come out. He's not come out yet. He's still within the man. He's still within, I should say, they are still within their host. So Jesus takes this moment, which is interesting. And some believe he was trying to ask the man his name. And some others say it was the demons. But in any case, um, the demons are the ones that answer. And he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion for we are many. My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, in Roman terms, in the Roman military, a legion was a regiment of approximately 6,000 soldiers. So it's possible there were as many as 6,000 demons in this man. But, however, the word legion can also at times be used to simply mean a very large number. Like we might say, oh, there was a ton of people down at the fair this summer. We're not really saying there was 2,000 pounds of people at the fair. (laughs) We're just saying that there was a big number. It was like a lot. So it could have been either or. We know that there was many. There could have been thousands. Remember also, Mark's audience is it primarily Jew or Gentile? Who remembers from our like first or second week? It's, yeah, it's primarily Gentile, possibly written in Rome as he was listening to Peter's uh, view of, of what had happened. And so if, if you're there as a Roman citizen and this letter is being dispersed in the Roman church, um, you read the word legion and that's gonna strike a chord because you're very familiar with the military of the Roman uh, government, uh, the, the different ways that the troops are divided. So you would have understood that. It, was, it would have been for them, and I think for us as well, even though we're not there, a symbol of great strength and oppression. A legion of demons. Many demons. Hundreds, if not thousands, upon thousands of demons living in this man. You know, one demon is one too many. We've already seen that with the man in the synagogue earlier in Mark. But now it's thousands. It's thousands. We're going to see Jesus' authority is no less as strong. Uh, We do know that Mary from Magdala uh, had seven demons that were living in her at one time. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, this is after the resurrection, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. So there's another example where multiple demons are living, abiding in one human host. Uh, We also have this parable out of Matthew 12, where Jesus talks about uh, multiple demons um, inhabiting a person. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house, meaning the person's body, 
from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be also with this wicked generation. So there's a lot of things going on there, but we can learn a few things about the demons, demonology, if you will, out of this, out of this text. Um, they seem to desire a host. Notice that they, they go out of a man, they're wandering through these dry places. So as Jesus, when Jesus would cast out a spirit, apparently they would go out into the dry regions, in the desert regions, seeking rest, but they can't find any. They're disembodied spirits. They're looking for a host. They're looking for a flesh and blood body. Um, and so we, we also see from this parable that Jesus gives, multiple demons can possess one body. And apparently, there's a hierarchy of evil among the demon horde. It says that um, he finds seven other spirits more wicked than himself. Now, I can't imagine how that all works because they're obviously fully all wicked, but apparently some are more wicked, maybe willing to do worse things. I don't know how that all works together, um, but there seems to be some kind of hierarchy. Now notice back in our text here in verse number 10, the demon is still in the man and he's still begging for mercy. He's still talking, interacting with Jesus. And it says, also he begged Jesus earnestly that he would not send them. So they apparently the in this demon legion, this host of demons living in this man, there was one that was kind of the spokesman. Maybe he was the one more evil than the others. I don't know. But in any case, he's the one uh, that is the spokesman for the, the horde. And he's telling Jesus, uh, begging him, that he would not send them, notice those pronouns, he begged him, they would not send them out of the country. They didn't want to go to the dry places. They wanted to go back into the Decapolis and find another person to take up residence in. That's what they're begging him for. Of course, Jesus does not allow that. They didn't want to be forced to exist as disembodied spirits. They wanted to stay in that region. They wanted to find a new host. But as we're thinking about this conversation, what about Jesus are we continuing to establish? His authority. His authority. Notice the demons begged him earnestly. They could not do anything without his permission. They're like a little child with their daddy asking for permission. Of course, that's a, maybe not the best uh, analogy because there's certainly not um, a familial relationship between demons and Christ. But that's, that's the, I'm trying to get a, a sense of the height of Jesus' authority and their um, position of obedience to that authority. They're begging him for this. And Mark, once again, is establishing the authority. Let's jump down to verse 12. Uh, Because verse 11 tells us, now a large herd of swine, or pigs, was feeding there near the mountains. So he was coming out of the tombs. The disciples and Jesus are, are there on the shore where the boat was landed. And at some 
some other region close by, there was this herd of swine. Verse 12, so all the demons begged him, once again, Jesus' authority, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. We can see you're not going to allow us to stay in the region. You're not going to allow us to go back into a human host, but would you, would you send us into these pigs? And that brings us to number three, the demoniac's cure. And we'll start in verse 14. Actually, verse 13. And at once, Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out. So there's the cure. Finally, after all this time of living in tombs, unclothed, chained and shackled, cut, lacerated, filthy, shunned from society, relief. And by whose authority and power? By the power of Christ. He gives them permission. They went out and entered the swine and there were about 2,000 and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, some have said, well, maybe there was 2,000 demons. Well, this doesn't really tell us that. We don't want to speculate too much. Um, there could have been multiple demons. If there was 6,000, multiple in each swine, there could have been, maybe there was only a few hundred demons, but once you get a herd running, they're all going to kind of run. So it doesn't really give us that specific. All we see, and that's the Mar- Mark's point, is the authority of Christ sending them into these pigs and they drown in the sea. Now we're past our time, but I want, I want to point out um, the result. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed because there were those tending the swine and had the legion. Notice, he's now sitting. He's no longer frantically running about, cutting himself, screaming, He's sitting, he's calm, passive. He's also clothed. But that helps us understand that he was indeed unclothed before. He's got new clothes. And in his right mind. Finally, after all this time of torment and wild, crazy, frenzied behavior, he was in his right mind. And notice, what is their response? They were afraid. I want you to see as we close, as we finish the parallels here. This radical transformation had happened. As we think about what we just read and the parallel or the uh, passage previous, the calming of the storm. Both end in fear. The disciples were afraid after the storm was stilled. Those that saw the demoniac sitting clothed and in his right mind were afraid. They were in awe. The herdsmen, like the disciples, were witnesses to an amazing miracle, but the result in both cases was not faith, not yet. Third, the composure of the healed demoniac is a direct parallel to the calmness of the sea. And both came at Jesus' commands. And as we work our way through uh, Mark 5, we're going to see Jesus' authority on display. But I also want us to look ahead. We're going to pick up another theme in Mark, and that is the theme of freedom. 
the theme of freedom. We're going to pray to close uh, because we're past. And I do see your hand over there, so right after we pray. But let's go ahead and pray as we finish. Father, thank you so much for the authority of Jesus Christ in this world over demons, over sin, over Satan, over death. And he accomplished that all on the cross for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we're so thankful, Lord, that we have a Savior who is also an authority of the universe. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. So please, Lord, help us to acknowledge his authority as we go out into our lives this week. Help us, Lord, as, as uh, we, need to, we need help. Lord, we need to cry out to you. We need to ask for your blessing, ask for your, your help and the things that we have to do. Lord, you've given us a big task. We can't do it in our own strength, so please help us to turn to you and rely on your strength, Lord.